You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 334 of this podcast Today is February 2022, the 21st of February to be more precise. And I will be honest with you, I did not sleep worth beans last night. I slept about three and a half hours according to my Fitbit, which I just recently picked up to try and get a better handle on my health as I'm trying to work out and get more fit, get more exercise, get more active, especially with a sit-down job, 12 hours on, seven days straight at a time. I really need to be being a good steward of my health as I see it. If I want to be a good husband, a good father, a good man, I should be exercising. I shouldn't just be sitting all the time. That's not a recipe for longevity. Not that I expect to live forever this side of the return of the king, but insofar as the Lord does have me here for a time, for a season, for a purpose, I want to invest myself well and for the duration and to be operating at something at least closer to peak efficiency, probably not peak efficiency, But it's a funny thing because I was planning on talking about Francis Schaeffer's book, How Then Should We Live, this morning because I just finished it up yesterday. I finished up How Then Should We Live or How Should We Then Live. I think it's How Should We Then Live. Yes, sure enough. How Should We Then Live? The Rise and Decline of Western Thought and Culture. Started it yesterday finished it yesterday. Yesterday was Sunday. Today's Monday. My work schedule did not permit me to attend church in person, but Lauren and the kids, they all went. And with a quiet house, being a little bit lonely, I thought, you know, I'm going to go ahead and turn on an audio book while I work. It's kind of a slow day at work. I've got some things to work on, some projects, some data reports to query. And while I am answering the phone every now and then, keeping an eye on the emails, running these reports, I'll listen to Francis Schaeffer. And so I did. And the funny thing, at least to me, I think it's kind of funny, is when answering the question of how should we then live, don't sleep for three and a half hours. Don't only get that little rest. You need more sleep than that in a night, more than three and a half hours. Now, I have a good reason. It's for a good cause, and I don't think it could be helped or it could have been helped. Maybe we'll revisit that today, see if there's ways that we can mitigate what happened last night. But about 1.30 in the morning, our newborn... Dear sweet baby boy, Andrew Matthias, decided that he was more interested in 
stretching his lungs and his vocal cords. I don't know what the issue was, if he was just gassy or what, but he decided he did not want to sleep anymore, about 1.30. And so Lauren tried various things, tried calming him down, and he just, he was beside himself. And so at a certain point, I went down to the kitchen, got some gripe water, as they call it, and Lauren gave him some of that, but he still, still was not real pleased, wasn't real thrilled. And so I got up with him. I said, oh, you know, at least one of us should, at least one of us should sleep. You should sleep. I'll take one for the team. I'll get up and maybe go find something to watch. Maybe I'll watch something on my computer. And so I got up and went to Amazon Prime. And just for anyhow, I started watching some cartoon series. It's like a cartoon fantasy series that was showing up as featured on my profile. And I started watching that, and it's like, wow, this is awful. This is a cartoon, and it's being featured prominently, but this is entirely inappropriate. Entirely. Like, the language is F-bombs here and there, and lewd humor and gratuitous violence and nudity and just blech. no nope not watching this click don't need that in my head don't need to be meditating on that this is just worthless and it was interesting to me all the more because I had been just listening to Francis Schaeffer talking about art history talking about how you can trace trends in philosophy, what we believe about the nature of truth and reality and the meaning of life and who God is and who we are and why we're here and all that good stuff. You can trace the history of philosophy by looking at the history of art. And I didn't expect how should we then live to be as much on uh, the same sort of subject as Escape from Reason was but it's been several years, and I still quote Escape from Reason. I still find the premise of Schaefer exploring philosophy and art and theology and culture and politics altogether the way that he did in Escape from Reason. But one of the interesting things in How Should We Then Live is when Francis Schaefer gets to our day and age, or maybe it would be more correct to say his day and age. He wrote this book uh, a while back. It's been a few decades. Published in 1975, according to goodreads.com. It's been around for a bit. It's actually 11 years older than I am by my calculations, maybe 12 actually. I don't know, I suppose it depends on what time of year. But in any event, it's older than I am. So he's writing in his day and age and things have not improved drastically since then. So he might as well be talking about right now. But he explores this idea, this philosophical idea arising out of 
humanism. And there is a kind of Christian humanism that was born of the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, the Protestant Reformation. There is a kind of humanism that can be Christian. God made man, and we should be very interested in studying man as a way of loving God, being intentional in the way that we express ourselves, in the way that we relate to one another. I think of Jeremiah Burroughs writing in The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment about the need to be a student of our own hearts, to be pure, to be God-honoring, to be diligent, to be self-controlled. But there's not only a Christian version of humanism. There's definitely a secular and atheistic version of humanism that rejects God's word as divine, inspired, inerrant, sufficient, and true. And that version of humanism we are more familiar with because that version of humanism elevated man's reason to the preeminent place. In fact, when the French Revolution succeeded after a fashion in toppling the old regime, a cult of reason was hatched to replace the Catholic Church. They still needed a kind of religion. They wanted a kind of religion. And the cult of reason was going to be just the thing. Except it didn't really take off. It didn't really do well. It was unreasonable. There was a kind of mocking that maybe was funny at first, but in the long run was impersonal and not believable and not credible and not inspiring. But Schaefer talks about Francis Crick, one of the two scientists who helped to discover the double helix pattern in DNA some of the things that he wrote and talked about in terms of why he was pursuing science. And Francis Crick, for his part, wanted to pursue science in a very humanistic way. But apart from God, that humanism, as we saw expressed in the totalitarian regimes in Nazi Germany and the Soviet Union, communist China, an inhuman humanism very quickly ends up curing the patient by killing the patient, curing the disease by killing the patient. In order to perfect man, only the best specimens should be allowed to breed, to prosper, even to live. So what do you do with the rest? You casually dispose of them, like so many failed experiments. Brush them into the dustbin, be done with them. But through the 60s and the 70s, some of Aldous Huxley's ideas from Brave New World took on a serious expression. I've always assumed that Huxley's Brave New World was a cautionary tale only, but apparently Huxley told his wife at one point, that if ever it looked like he was going to die, he wanted her to give him LSD so that he would die while tripping. And his soma, 
the drug of choice in the brave new world by which everyone is kept contented and at peace, he really thought was a part of the solution to the problems in the world. If more people would just do drugs, we could solve the problems of war and jealousy and want. We would become enlightened. We could transport ourselves into a higher plane of existence, past war, past fighting, past jealousy, past anger and bitterness. And I always thought, like I say, I always thought Brave New World was a cautionary tale by a leftist who didn't want to see things get out of hand. As it turns out, there might have been more of a serious note to what he portrays. And when I say serious, I mean that he thought some of these ideas he was cautioning us about were a better idea than, well, the way that the world was in his time. And so then you come to the 1960s and the 1970s and drug culture and hippie movements and free love and the sexual revolution. And by Schaefer's telling, a lot of young people actually tried living out Huxley's ideas. There was serious talk of trying to slip LSD into the water supplies of cities as a way of helping to evolve mankind into a new and better tomorrow. If we would all just have a good trip, we would be the better for it. Maybe we wouldn't be in this cold war we find ourselves in or found ourselves in. And yet we find ourselves in a similar conflict now with a lot of the same players. Russia and China are still a problem. I'll say this, drugs, particularly hallucinogenic drugs, are not the answer. They are an escape from reality. If your best option in your way of thinking is to divorce yourself from reality, maybe, just maybe, you should rethink some of your assumptions. Maybe the way you've been going about it is just not functional and Maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a better approach that you ruled out that you shouldn't have ruled out. Maybe you're just being stubborn about it. Before you go divorcing yourself from reality, going into a death spiral, down and down and down into oblivion, come to Jesus, really truly. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But part of the reason why drugs were appealing to Huxley and a lot of the hippie movement, 1960s, 1970s crowd, had to do with this belief that man is inherently good and that in order to help him to be good, you have to get all of the systems out of the way, all of the corrupting influences of systems out of the way because it's what's outside of man that is the cause of all the trouble. Never mind where those systems come from. Well, they come from what's in the heart of man, in the mind of man, in the nature of man, apart from God, but also with some vestige, shall we say, of the character of God, the goodness of God. God's word tells us that God sends his reins on the just and the unjust. 
And so even when there's an imperfect expression, we still see glimpses of God's goodness and God's beauty in man. Yet, God's wrath is revealed against men who suppress the truth because they're wicked. They suppress the truth. They don't want to believe the truth and they don't want anybody else to either. Yet, if you believe that man is inherently good, if you believe that systems are what is wrong with man, you just have to get culture out of the way, religion out of the way, education out of the way, morals out of the way, responsibilities out of the way, government and politics and philosophy and economics out of the way. What exactly are you left with? Again, it is curing the disease by killing the patient. You know, if we just didn't have all of this humanity, we would be better humans. That's what it amounts to. That's what Mao's Cultural Revolution was about in China. That's what a lot of the bloodbaths of the modern era have been about, particularly when the left is ascendant. They have to purge the vestiges of the old regime, and conservatives consistently are vilified because they are trying to oppress, supposedly, everyone with things like culture and religion and morals and truth. You start putting responsibilities on people and saying, well, no, that's objectively false and bad, and you should do this other thing instead. You start trying to require something of people, however much it would be for their own good, for all our good. And if your assumption is faulty about man's nature, given that we live in a fallen creation, if your assumption is wrong about man, well, then you're going to say, ah, no, you're ruining it. State of nature, that's what we need to get back to. The noble savage, that's what we need to get back to. We could solve all this if we would just do some drugs, take off all our clothes, run around the jungle naked. That would fix everything. Now, never mind that plenty of the folks who have tried that go literally insane, or maybe they try it because they'd already gone literally insane. But it's not long at all before you end up with cannibalism and the worst kind of barbaric cruelty. The state of nature is not going to produce this peace and tranquility and happiness that folks believe it will when they believe that man is inherently good, fundamentally good. No sinful nature, no original sin. Well then, how do you explain man's inhumanity to man? And also, why is it that the most atheistic regimes have also been the most barbaric, the most inhuman? If religion is the cause of all of the problems, if religion is the cause of all the wars, then explain to me how Stalin did what he did, how Hitler did what he did, how Mao did what he did. Hitler wasn't a Christian. Stalin wasn't a Christian. Mao wasn't a Christian. They all embraced a kind of atheism or, at best, a neo-paganism in the case of Hitler. But the totalitarian bend is predicated on a kind of atheism. God's not God, I have to be God. Or, 
I want to be God, and therefore I'm going to stubbornly refuse to believe that there is any other God. Well, that's a pact with the devil. You just allied yourself with the guy who got kicked out of heaven with a third of the angels because he rebelled against the Most High. And lo and behold, Karl Marx had somewhat of a fascination with Satan. Go figure. So did Saul Alinsky. Saul Alinsky's Rules for Radicals. Saul Alinsky, father of political organizing, was literally a communist preparing for a violent overthrow of the U.S. government before he decided to go into community organizing, literally devotes his book to Satan. But I read, How Should We Then Live? And at the very, very end of, I believe it was chapter 12, there are some really fantastic quotes. And I'd like to share two in particular with you. First of all, Schaefer writes, No totalitarian authority nor authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. I'll read that again. No totalitarian authority nor authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. A couple of additional books I've realized I need to read after reading Schaefer's How Then Should We Live. One is Lex Rex, which I remember Doug Wilson referencing a time or two in his podcast, but never really checked it out. I thought, well, that's kind of an interesting name. Lex Rex. The law is king is what Lex Rex means in the Latin. The law is king is the basis for Magna Carta. It's also the basis for the American Revolution. The law is king. Lex Rex is why Edmund Burke supported the American Revolution, but he opposed the French Revolution. The French Revolution was born of arbitrary power grabs of the type that produced an intellectual philosophical heritage which Michel Foucault articulated very succinctly when he said that all truth claims are just a will to power. Foucault also is the same man who would intentionally, after he found out that he had AIDS, intentionally tried to have sex with as many men as he possibly could so as to give them AIDS as well. That's what comes of having a godlessness and an ambivalence towards the truth. It's not religion that's the cause of all of the problems in the world. It's man's sinful nature. It's man's rebellion against God. Those who hate me love death, God says in his word. And it's not as though they necessarily realize that they love death at the outset. But it's a very similar thing to Eve being tempted by the serpent. You will not surely die, the serpent says. Hath God said, the serpent asks. And in the end, the serpent's right. You won't die right away. But God is more right. Because Eve's not around anymore. Neither is Adam. It's appointed once for a man to die, and then comes the judgment. Now, that is the course 
of human history. But it was not always so. It wasn't supposed to be so. It won't always be so. Because we were made for eternity. So Lex Rex by Samuel Rutherford. Schaefer writes positively about the law is king. And why is the law king? Because God is the lawgiver and God is the king. Because God is the judge. Because it's appointed once for a man to die and then comes the judgment. Even the king has to be subject to the laws of God. And this too, not coincidentally, is why Schaefer writes at the very tail end of How Should We Then Live? that no totalitarian authority nor authoritarian state can tolerate those who have an absolute by which to judge that state and its actions. This is also why you see our corrupt media maligning anybody who dares question or disagree with the will to power truth claims of the likes of Joe Biden or Justin Trudeau. The only time at which they will abandon Trudeau and Biden is when they feel their own power slipping away, the ship's going down, abandoned ship, we need a new figurehead. But they are not committed to the truth, and they are not inherently good people. They're corrupt, and they suppress the truth by their unrighteousness. How then should we live? Well, again, we should get more than three and a half hours of sleep, and I apologize if on the other end of this podcast episode, you're scratching your head like, my goodness, Garrett, you should have waited. <laughs> but here's the reason why I recorded this podcast anyways, when I could have skipped today. I don't skip leg day, and I also really try hard to not skip podcasting in the mornings. Another thing that Schaefer writes, and this is the other quote I want to share with you from the end of the book. He says, to make no decision in regard to the growth of authoritarian government is already a decision for it. To make no decision is a decision for it. You're supporting it. To be silent is to acquiesce. Silence is consent and watching is condoning, as my father has told me my entire life. Silence is consent and watching is condoning. To say nothing, to do nothing is to agree with it, is to authorize it, is to affirm it. And yet consistently, Christians throughout church history and God's people, God's servants throughout all of human history have suffered and died because they don't suffer silently folly and sin. They call for repentance. They testify to the truth. They refuse to go along with the wicked, as Proverbs says. They refuse to go along with men who wait to shed innocent blood, who lie in wait for their own blood. No, don't go in with them. Schaefer, for his part, I really wonder about, in terms of his son, Frankie Schaefer is referenced throughout How Should We Then Live? And it's a sad story because Frankie started out working with his father, helping him, and now the elder Mrs. Schaefer and Mr. Schaefer have passed away. And Frankie has renounced the faith. 
He is not a Christian anymore in any recognizable sense. He's only a Christian in the same sense that C.S. Lewis talked about in Mere Christianity, where some people like to suppose they can believe anything at all and call themselves a Christian. And a Christian is not what you want it to be. A Christian is an objective thing defined by God. God knows. And also, by their fruits, we will know them, Jesus said. So Frankie Schaefer identifies as a Christian atheist, also is a very active Democrat, also has spoken out loud and proud against conservative so-called fundamentalist Christianity. You can say fundamentalist, but what he really means is Christianity that is defined, that is set, that is historically orthodox, that is biblical. He doesn't believe in that kind of Christianity anymore. And so what he believes instead is that he can just make it up. He knows better. He knew better. It's a sad deal that he's walked away. But I find myself pondering Francis Schaeffer writing all of these brilliant things and even having his son work with him and his son walking away from the faith. And that just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to think that at the end of all the study and teaching and sharing, Schaeffer's own son would be persuaded of just the opposite. It's so heartbreaking. It's so sad. Now, I know that it doesn't work this way. I know that it doesn't. But I find myself thinking as I read How Should We Then Live? That if I had to choose whether to continue on writing and podcasting and doing all this or else focus exclusively on being a husband and a father, if I could guarantee that my children all are saved, none of them fall away, I should far and away prefer that. I should far and away prefer that my own children know the truth and be set free by the truth and not depart from it. And we read in Proverbs, a father giving counsel to his son, listen, he says, listen, incline your ear, listen to a father's instruction. And the father in Proverbs wants his son to be blessed, to have a good life, to have good character, to know the good Lord, to be free indeed, to choose what is better. I think to myself from time to time that however many or however few listen to this podcast, someday, supposing the censors don't take it all down, someday I'll be gone and this podcast might just be the greatest inheritance I can leave to my children. And they'll know me better than anybody save my wife or the good Lord. And they'll know that I was not a perfect man, am not a perfect man. But boy, howdy, I want the way that I lived my life before them, with them, the way I served them, to help persuade them of the truth Part of what's involved in that is when I am in error, I have to admit it and not pretend 
not pretend that I have it all figured out or that I am so great. I recently met with another father and husband, a friend of mine. And I won't tell you who, and I won't say his name, but I will say that I met with him and I'm talking with him about some troubles that he's working through, that he's trying to sort through. And I'm talking with him about these and it occurred to me to just lay my cards on the table. And I have been, I have been meeting with him for some time now. And I have been employing this strategy, but no one wants to feel played and manipulated. So if in some measure he was picking up on my strategy and appreciating my intentions, but also feeling irked or embarrassed (laughs) that I would potentially play him, I told him, I said, you know, I'm just, I'm going to be honest about my struggles as a husband and as a father and as a man. And I hope that that can make it feel safer for you too as well. I hope that that can help you to be honest and know the truth and have the truth set you free. And as I search my own heart, as I try to be a student of my own heart before God, Because God knows. There's no deceiving him, even if we deceive ourselves. God knows who belonged to him. And if the debt is already paid, why would we be afraid to admit that we have erred? That we have made a mistake? Why why, Why would we be afraid of that? Why would we be afraid to say, hey, I shouldn't have said that. I don't know why I said that, but I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't true. That wasn't helpful. I shouldn't have done that. That didn't build you up. That didn't serve you well. That didn't honor God. Or on the flip side, I should have said this. You know what I should have said? I should have said this, because this is true, and you need to hear it, and I care about you. So I'm going to say it, even if it's difficult, even if I don't know how to say it. Well, and even if I'm going to sound silly saying it, I'm going to say it. Say what you need to say, as the song goes. I didn't do the thing I should have done, and I'm sorry. I should have done that thing, and I don't know why I didn't do it. Or I do know why I didn't. I was being selfish, or my priorities were out of whack, or what have you. You know, I recently had a conversation a very genuine conversation, I think. I didn't say all that I could have. Shocking, I know. But I had a very genuine conversation with my mother after the passing of my cousin, Amy. And both my mother and I found out about my cousin, Amy, my mother's niece, through my brother. And my brother for his part, found out because he was scrolling through Facebook. And not only was he scrolling through Facebook, but it was three weeks after she had passed. Not a word from uncles or aunts or other cousins on that side of the family. Not a word, not a peep to any of us. Just if you happen to see it as you're scrolling through Facebook, I guess you'll find out that 
a member of this family is no longer with us. And we're going to have a memorial service, but yeah, you don't really need to be there. Because you're not really part of this family, is what it communicates. And of course, it's a wounding thing. It's a sad thing. It's a heartbreaking thing to realize. And there's a whole lot of backstory to that that I'm not going to get into. Not here, not now. But I will say, as I talked with my mom about the dynamic on her side of the family, strained and broken relationships, estrangement, neglect, abuse, indifference. I told her, I said, you know, at a minimum, it sure is a motivating thing when it comes to wanting to lead my family well, wanting to train my children to be kind to one another, to build each other up, to have each other's backs, to serve one another, to serve others, to do what's right, to be decent, to serve God, to listen to what God says about how we should then live. It definitely is motivating. I don't know that there's anything to be done about the dynamic as far as previous generations go, but there is a bittersweet blessing in that God does not hold the sins of the fathers against their children, for one thing. And for another thing, God does not hold the sins of children against their parents. And yet, if I stopped at saying that, it would not be enough. A righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. And I've evolved, I suppose, in my understanding of that over the years. I used to think that was talking about material wealth. And it, as with so many things, it doesn't have to be either or. It doesn't have to be either symbolic or literal or material. I think ideally it's both, truly. Ideally, it would be both material and spiritual. The inheritance that a righteous man leaves for his children's children. But at a minimum, which would be better? Which would be preferable? And when we think about it, we should conclude that leaving a spiritual inheritance for our children's children would be far, far better. My mother, for her part, told me that she's proud of my brother and I for having families, being married, loving our wives, having children, loving our children. Yes, we have good jobs, but she couldn't be more proud of us if we were multimillionaires. Because having these families that we have, that's what real wealth is. That's real wealth. Yes, I slept three and a half hours. It's not feeling like the embarrassment of riches this morning. <laughs> I haven't slept in 15 years. Mazel tov. <laughs> but in all seriousness, however exhausting it might be when your three-week-old is screaming his lungs out because he's a little gassy and he doesn't particularly notice that it's 1.45 a.m., I look in his face and I see far more beauty than if my bank account went to the moon. And so then, as I consider how should we then live, 
couple of things come to mind. For one, I want to study. And I want my kids to hear this. If they ever wonder, Dad, why do you read so many books? Why are you reading all these books? Why are you doing all this podcasting? Here's why. I want to leave an inheritance to my children's children. And I'm not talking first and foremost some bison farm out in the countryside, some custom-built house with all the amenities. I'm not talking about a massive fund, trust fund in a bank account. I'm talking a spiritual inheritance. That's the kind of inheritance that I want to leave, if nothing else, endures. How should we then live? Well, for one thing, we should be living in light of God's grace. Because we need it badly. And the good news is, we have it in Christ. We have the all-surpassing riches of his kindness in Christ. We should be living in light of God's truth. Because the truth will set us free. And who the Son sets free is free indeed. We should be of good cheer and courage because if God is for us, who can be against us? We should have humility because God willing, we'll live and do this or that. But we should also have confidence boldly approaching the throne. We're invited. We should love one another well because this family, this life, this opportunity is a blessing from God. It's a reflection of God's goodness. How we treat it, how we steward it, is a reflection of what we think of God. Are we thankful? Do we steward it like we're thankful? We must. We must, we must, we must. I would highly recommend to you, in closing, How Should We Then Live? 1975, Francis Schaeffer. If it's a little over your head, don't feel bad. Don't be embarrassed. It was over my head too. There's a lot there, a lot to take in. I don't think this is one of those that I understand in one sitting, even as I'm trying to explain it to my son, Josiah. I hope uh, he understands the intention. Probably should pick up a physical copy, write these things out so as to make sure we understand what's what and who's who and when this and that and the other. But on the other hand, we have to start with God's word, study that, meditate on that. By God's grace, we'll endure and overcome and prosper. But I got to run. I'm going to try and put in 12 hours of work now that I have slept three and a half hours. You can pray for me in that regard. Also, too, if you would, we got an offer on our house in Sydney Yesterday, the realtor called. I have some things to attend to. She's going to counteroffer this morning. They offered about 20000 less than what we listed the house for, but a realtor thinks we might be able to get a little bit closer, at least, to our asking price. I should hope so. We had a freeze-up here recently. A dishwasher needs replaced. Also, a toilet is missing and the plumbers could have told me that. That would have been cool to know like a month ago. So good job, guys, repairing the uh, broken 
implements, piping, fittings, whatnot. Also, maybe just next time, let a guy know that one of the toilets is no longer there. That'd be be great. Be swell. In any event, we are very thankful that we've got an offer on the house. I know we have people that we love and care about in Montana who will be sad to see that link no longer present. I know that I know that I know that there are friends and family who would love if we moved back. I don't get that leading in direction from the good Lord, though. Hopefully we come back to visit at some point. But, God willing, we'll live and do this or that. And At present, the Lord's leading and guiding is we sell this house and make our home here. This is where he's led us. I got to run, though, as always. Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.